You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll hear how calculating excess deaths in hospitals isn't as straightforward as some commentators would have you believe. So it's a re- it's a very complex issue, and um, to take these you know very. Uh, fragile numbers, shall we say, and start claiming so many thousands of needless deaths is most, it's, it's, you know, it's number abuse, it really is. It's, it's. But first, a novel avian flu virus. Harriet Vickers asks, should we be worried? At the end of March this year, cases of a new avian flu virus, that's H7N9, were reported as having infected a handful of people in China. As of the end of May, 132 people had contracted the disease and of these 37 have died. But it's thought that all of these infections were caught directly from birds, particularly poultry. Now, a group of researchers have published a paper in the BMJ writing that a man in eastern China who died of the disease probably passed it directly to his daughter. We've got an editorial to go alongside this paper and James Rudge, who's a lecturer and researcher in the Communicable Diseases Policy Research Group that's part of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine but based in Bangkok, has co-authored that and um, he's on the line with me now to, to discuss the paper and its findings. So good morning James, thanks very much for coming on. Okay, thank you very much. To kick us off, could you just give us a summary of, of what the researchers did and, and what they concluded from this? Well, it's um, basically an in-depth investigation of a cluster of two human cases um, that were, were found during the cases of H7N9 that were observed um, earlier in the year. They conducted an investigation into the link between these two cases, um, for example, through investigating their previous exposure patterns with infected birds or with um, live animal markets, given that poultry are suspected to be a main um, reservoir for this virus. The index case, the first case, was was the father, a 60-year-old man, mm. which um, who was found to have visited a, a live poultry market quite soon before becoming sick. Um, And his daughter provided quite prolonged um, bedside care to her father over several days before he was admitted to an intensive care unit. And she later became sick. Um, And so the authors concluded that this was probably a case of human-to-human transmission for, I guess, three main reasons. First of all, there was no indication that the daughter had visited a live poultry market or had contact with um, infected birds prior to becoming sick. Um, Secondly, the two viruses that were isolated from each of the cases were almost genetically identical. And thirdly, of course, there's the fact that they did have very close and prolonged and unprotected contact. Right, okay. Yeah, it said in the paper she was actually cleaning his oral secretions, which I guess is sort of quite unusually close contact. That's right. I know that the the Chinese authorities have been quite thorough at tracing the contacts of the various cases of H7N9 that have cropped up. And and this is really the strongest evidence of a human-to-human transmission event. And there's been very few signs of infection in uh, the other contacts that they've traced. So are you fairly convinced then um, that this does show person-to-person transmission? Well, I think on balance it seems like the most likely explanation but um, as the authors of of this study do acknowledge there are some limitations Um, particularly neither case could actually be interviewed directly because they were both critically ill at the time of the investigation so this means that the possibility that the daughter did in fact have contact 
with an, infe- an infected bird, for example, that possibility cannot be ruled out. But on balance, it seems probable. But this seems to show quite a high threshold for moving f- directly from person to person. Do you think that's right? I would say, it, 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 in a way, it kind of confirms that the virus really cannot spread very easily between humans because they needed to have this very close contact for this event to occur, assuming this transmission event from father to daughter did occur. And the fact that thousands of contacts of the other H7N9 cases that have been traced and and tested and observed, none of those have shown any clear or strong signs of infection. Okay. Do we have any other clues that H7N9 might transmit person to person? Well, I think prior to this paper, there was some um, suspected cases of human-to-human transmission. I think, I think there were two or three clusters w- with more than one case within a family, for example. But as far as I'm aware, this is the strongest evidence of, of any human-to-human transmission yet. And, and what about things like animal studies or, or the, the structure of the virus? Are, are there any clues there? Yes, this study does come quite closely after some um, laboratory studies which have shown that this virus can transmit relatively easily via the airborne route between ferrets, which is a mammalian model in the laboratory, or at least more easily than other bird flu viruses such as H5N1 can. And is this strain um, exceptional in that? Are there any lessons from other zoonotic influenzas? Seeing limited human-to-human transmission isn't unexpected, I would say, because we have seen some limited human-to-human transmission for other bird flu viruses in the past, particularly H5N1, and also um, for an outbreak of the H7N7 virus, which caused an outbreak in the Netherlands back in 2003. So um, neither of these viruses have then gone on to show sustained transmission among humans. So I I would say this isn't necessarily a sign or an indication that the H7N9 virus will then go on to develop and adapt towards um, sustained transmission among humans. Right, okay. So how, how worried do you think we should really be by these, these findings then, that, you know, the, thinking about the virus progressing to sustained human-to-human transmission and, and causing a pandemic? I mean, given that we've got this high threshold for transmission, that it's been seen before in other flu viruses, and I guess also the... Um, the number of virus cases has dropped quite significantly since earlier this year. Do you think we would have seen a pandemic already if it was going to occur? I wouldn't say that because we haven't seen one yet, then we're unlikely to see one in the future from this virus. I wouldn't definitely wouldn't say, say that. But, you know, I would say probably the key message from this study is that we do need to remain vigilant. But this evidence of limited human-to-human transmission certainly isn't cause for us to panic. But having said that, uh, H7N9 does have a few traits which do make it a particular concern compared with some other bird flu viruses. For a start, there's the evidence of airborne transmission in a mammalian model, um, specifically ferrets that that we discussed earlier. And then there's the fact that um, H7N9 seems to be non-lethal in birds. So this means it can easily spread undetected in, in domestic and probably wild bird populations. And con- containing the spread among birds could be a huge challenge. And then there's also evidence that quite a few um, mild human cases might have actually occurred undetected. So there is a positive side of this in that the virus may be less lethal than indicated by the fatality rates um, among the confirmed cases. But this does mean that the potential for this virus to adapt further to humans 
could be somewhat higher than for other bird flu viruses if it has higher rates of transmission from birds to humans. Um, but of course, only time will tell if this virus does adapt further towards human transmission or not. Okay, so do you think we should be keeping an, an eye on it, particularly as the um, you know the flu season is coming up later in the year? We definitely shouldn't let, let our guard down because, you know, although no new cases of H7N9 have been reported in recent weeks, many researchers do believe that we should expect a resurgence later in the year as winter approaches in, in China. I would say we need to stay vigilant, not only with surveillance in humans and birds, but also in other animals, um, particularly pigs, and because pigs can potentially act as mixing vessels um, for flu viruses of um, swine or human or avian origin. As we saw with the previous pandemic, um, these animals could potentially play a role in the emergence of new influenza viruses with pandemic potential. Great. Okay. Well, well, hopefully it won't come to that. But um, James, thanks very much for for coming on and and talking to us about that. Thank you very much. And that article's available online on bmj.com, where the authors have also created a video abstract to explain their research. Now, a recent report from NHS Medical Director Bruce Keogh's office compares mortality rates in various hospitals. Using different measures, they're trying to look for outliers that require further investigation. As we've heard in the past, standardised mortality rates are tricky and have to be interpreted carefully. To discuss how this has been done, earlier this week I caught up with David Spiegelhalter, the Winton Professor of Public Understanding of Risk at the University of Cambridge. David, last time you were here talking about micro-lives and now it's lost lives. Presumably it's a good thing to look at mortality rates, to compare hospitals, to, to look for outliers. What's the problem with the CURE report, or at least the uh, interpretations of the CURE report we've seen? Uh, first of all, yes, obviously, you know, one should look at, at mortality rates, but it is a very crude measure of outcome. Uh, how um, these different indices try to deal with it is to produce and it was so-called expected uh, mortality rate based on the case mix of the hospital, and then compare the observed with the expected. And uh, then you might produce a ratio from that to find out whether there seems to be um, more deaths than, than expected. Now, the crucial thing about that is that, that you know, I think people agree that that's a, you know, one should try to measure this. Um, it can be used as a very crude screening device. The real problem comes two things. First of all, when people start, you know, ranking hospitals, creating league tables based on these very, very imperfect measures. And secondly, and this is with a real problem uh, that I highlight in the uh, article, is when people take the difference between the observed and the expected deaths and what they call that difference. Now, uh, now this is where I think in the article I do admit personal blame, or at least part of the team mm. that gets blamed, because when we worked on the Bristol Royal Infirmary Inquiry, we did exactly this. We, ca- we subtracted for Bristol the, observed, the expected from the observed number of deaths and called this the excess deaths. Now, this was a huge mistake. At the time, it wasn't too bad because Bristol was so clearly an outlier. It stuck out like a sore thumb. Now, that, but that term, when it's generally used, um, is so easily translated, as I say, either through ignorance or mendacity, into avoidable or needless deaths. And that is the last thing that it measures. And Well, that's exactly what uh, Brian Jarman has done. He's said that there were 13,000 excess deaths. 
What's statistically wrong with that? Why can't you say so that? In one of the indices used was developed by Dr. Foster, the hospital um, standardized mortality ratio um, developed by Brian Jarman's team. And, um, and he, for example, calculated that for the 14 hospitals uh, that uh, the Keogh report was looking at, um, the difference over the last so many years, seven years, of the observed to the expected deaths. And that came to 13,000. And this, um, uh, he's, he's put uh, the email he sent to the Daily Telegraph Telegraph online, uh, so I've seen it, in which he says it's 13,000, but in the part of the email he says these should not be interpreted as avoidable or needless deaths. And you can only say that by looking at individual cases and knowing that there was some sort of error or, or some problem with that particular case. The Daily Telegraph and other newspapers took these numbers and reported them as needless and avoidable deaths. And mm. um, that's why I wrote the article, I think, is, <laughs> to be honest, absolutely outrageous reporting. You know, um, when the Keogh report actually came out, it specifically and very clearly repudiated any calculation of avoidable or needless deaths. It says this would be, um, let me get it quick, clinically meaningless and academically reckless. To use such statistical measures to quantify actual numbers of avoidable deaths, the complete opposite of what the um, newspaper articles were saying. I think the Kia report was a wonderful work of great thoroughness and great care, very th extremely thoughtful, um, balanced way of investigation of these hospitals. It's interesting in the Kia report. There's two different measures of mortality use, and they come out with really different results, the same hospitals didn't appear on either of them. What's going on there? Yeah, the, the HSMR has been around for a long time and uh, Brian Jarman has been, I think, quite reasonably um, a bit fed up that, you know, he's been saying for years that hospitals has high values on this and nobody, he's, you know, apparently has taken much notice of it. But over the last few years, the NHS itself has developed its own similar measure, the SHMI, S-H-M-I, the Standardised Hospital Mortality Index, or indicator, and uh, that is a similar measure. It's got certain differences from the HSMR, and actually, it can come up with very different results, uh, quite remarkably different, really. And it, <laughs> it also seems a little bit of a mystery about quite why that happens. Um, as part of the investigation of, of Basildon, for example, the team made a great effort to try to understand why there was these differences, and they, um, you know did various adjustments which only made the measures even more different mm -hmm. so um, uh, and that's one of the reasons why the Keogh report is, again specifically says and um, because of the sort of difference that that's one of the reasons why any uh, measure coming out of these general mortality indicators should be taken treated extremely cautiously so it's a it's a very complex issue and um, to take these you know very uh, fragile numbers, shall we say, and start claiming so many thousands of needless deaths is most, it's, it's, you know, it's number abuse, it really is. It's, 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 there's also just the misunderstanding, apparently, of what expected mortality means, and which something I wish I said in the article, is perhaps a better term would be predicted mortality, because then it would make, make clear that actually half the time hospitals will have greater than expected mortality and half the time roughly they'll have less than expected mortality and that's what an average is that's what an average is even the bbc website which they really should change it, it, it it's in its explanatory uh, website of these issues it says outliers are trusts which have a higher than expected number of deaths 
No. Actually, half of trusts, I've, I've looked on the SHME, 56% of trusts have above expected mortality. Just about exactly what you'd expect. So presumably there are still outliers. You know, it's possible to outlie a sort of central range. Absolutely, absolutely. And the KIA report uses the nice term, expected range. Now, how that range is actually calculated, again, there's some, um, I wouldn't say arbitrariness, but but um, choice about that. And the uh, SHME, for example, has got a slight, uses a slightly wider range. So using their um, current definition, um, out of 142 trusts, uh, hang on, let me tell you, 11. Um, 8% are currently would be labelled as outliers, which seems a, a rather plausible figure, certainly better than half. So as you said, there's a different expected range with the measures. Do you have a, a favourite one? Is an aggregate of both best or, or is there one that sort of stands out? I, I prefer the government one, the SHME one. Um, it's based on all cases. Um, HSMR is only based on 80%. It's based on 30-day mortality. HSMR is only based on in-hospital mortality. Um, uh, HSMR still includes a coding for palliative care, which is well known to have been manipulated. See, now it looks like it's not been manipulated, that, that it's reduced to a, to a proper level. But in the past, you know, hosp- some hospitals said half their cases coded as if they'd been admitted for palliative care, which is, um, of course, ridiculous. And the uh, SHME is a bit, little bit more stringent in defining its outliers. I like the way it uses its outlier definition. But, of course, I would say that wouldn't I, perhaps, because um, they're using um, uh, you know, methodology that I, I helped develop. So, uh, and, and actually looking back in the past, it seems to me, looking at the cases that Keo report looked at, the SHME was a lot more stable meaning HSMR, which seems to suffer from um, rather extraordinary volatility. David, thanks for talking to us today. Okay, thanks. And David's article, looking in more depth at the use of standardised mortality rates in the NHS, is available online now. And that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be hearing how screening for cervical cancer can move away from cytology and start using HPV. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.